Hey everybody, this is Larry Little and you're listening to Crossing the Line, a podcast where we talk with leaders about the moments in their lives where they cross that line from leading with their head to leading with their hearts and then from leading with their hearts to leading with their heads. Today we have a great example of crossing the line with an incredible leader whose name is Moshe Wanunu. Now that name might not sound familiar to you, but I'll tell you this, you have seen his work. Moshe has worked behind the scenes in, in the news industry for years. He worked at, at Fox News, you've seen his work there. He's worked on Bloomberg TV, he worked on CBS and developed and ran the CBS news streaming news channel and ran the Washington coverage for CBS show called This Morning. He has uh, he's been a political reporter, just an incredible experience. Then in 2020 or so, he he launched and for the first time he came out from behind the camera to in front of the camera and he launched mo news it's a podcast it's a it's a news stream it's a website and it's an amazing journey is what it is now i could tell you about uh, most all the awards I, i just couldn't name them all he's just so brilliant he's won all these awards but what he's learned through his journey is what's really re- rewarding. And that's what I want you to hear through this podcast. He, he is a, a master storyteller. You're going to enjoy hearing his journey. But he, he really comes at the end of the day to tell you what is important in his life and what he's learned through his incredible journey of, of being able to, to talk to and be around uh, presidents and, and celebrities and world leaders and all of those things, but truly finding purpose. Uh, later in his career. I'm excited about this podcast. You're going to enjoy it, I'm telling you, so I'll be quiet so you can. Let's jump into the interview with Moshe Wanunu right now. Well, now, I can't believe I'm doing this, but I am talking to the Moshe Wanunu. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I can't believe it. Uh, he's here. He is uh, in person on, on screen. And so welcome to Crossing the Line, Moshe. Thank you so much for being here. Larry, it's a pleasure. I appreciate the invite. Well, I, I tell you, um, you, you have done an amazing job. You built an amazing company. But more importantly, and, and we have a personal connection, and, and, and you know, so I know a little bit about you and how you lead and how you lead your team and uh, I'm, I'm just impressed with you. So I'm excited today that we get to hang out a little bit and we get to talk about Moshe and we get to learn about uh, about how you got to where you are today. Well, I appreciate that. It's a welcome break from the 24-7 news cycle uh, as as we get to dive into some other things. I don't have to see what the latest is right now, Larry. I'm taking a, I'm taking a break from the news for once, for it. at least the next I hour. I love it. Break time. That's I love that. And uh, those on the podcast, they'll hear and have heard in the the um, the introduction and and then they'll hear more at the end and and man i hope everybody listening will jump on to to your news program because it is incredible but let's talk about you for a minute so most let's go back and uh i, I want to know about about who you were as a child and and where where did you grow up and what was a day in, in the life of most like when he was six seven eight years old <laughs> well uh first things first you know with a name like Moshe Wanunu the first question you ask as a child is like what's our story uh because <laughs> you know you starting in kindergarten the teachers were calling the role and there's always that pause after they're they're, they're like Miller Nelson and then there's the pause because my last name Wanunu begins with an O and so uh, my, my father is originally from Marrakesh, Morocco. He's born and raised uh, in Morocco. 
uh, would eventually as a teenager, his family would move to Israel. Uh, he was a commando there in the military and then eventually mm-hmm. comes to the US um, to work a bit, meets my mom. And, uh, you know, they end up sticking around and having a couple sons. I'm their eldest. And uh, so I grew up, my mother's American, my father's uh, an immigrant. So first generation, at least on one side. And uh, from a very young age, my dad was initially in construction, then he was a cabinet maker, had a cabinet shop. And so I grew up, you know, a lot, basically every school break, every school vacation, uh, odd days here and there, uh, I was in my dad's cabinet shop. And so starting from a very young age, you know, my mother worked with my father. She did the bookkeeping for the, um, for the business. My father, you know, ran the cabinet shop, had some folks with him and, you know, built, you know, a lot of home stuff, uh, home renovations, kitchens, uh, you know, libraries, that sort of thing. Uh, and so that was always a a key part of, uh, my upbringing was it was the family business, family, everybody. So, so. Moshe, would you say that that you're a carpenter? I mean, do you have those skills? Did you get those skills from your dad? I've just got to ask. On a scale, if we're grading on a scale, Larry, yes. If we're comparing me to my father, absolutely not. <laughs> and he would tell you the same. In fact, still, you know, I'm 41 years old now. And he's like, listen, I think I need to come over to New York and reteach you a few things. I heard, I heard from your brother that you still don't know how to do a couple of these things and we need to retrain you. So um, on a scale of, of most, uh, you know, people in America, yes, I could do much more in the house than the average, than the average uh, guy. Uh, but compared to my father, no, my father is very, very skilled. And you started, business. how old were you when you started working with him in the shop? I'm just curious. I was, uh, you know, when I could walk, um, you know, yeah. uh, and, you know, he'd give us tasks as, as a, at a young age, like sanding and sweeping the shop and, you know, various things. Um, but that's, you know, going on with him to deliveries, to installations. Uh, and so that was a, a key part um, of my upbringing. At the same time, I was always, uh, and this is from my parents too, fascinated by, I became, one of the first books I loved as like a four-year-old was The World Atlas. And I'd go through it and start just testing myself, memorizing world capitals and then drawing flags. Um, and already, you know, you mentioned age six, I'm, I want to be a weatherman. Like I want to be a TV meteorologist. I've decided that in kindergarten. Uh, there was a show, I grew up in suburban Chicago and Chicago is the home of WGN. And I think WGN for the most part now is, is pretty national. Yeah. And there was a show in the mornings called the Bozo Show. Um, yeah. If some people might remember that. I do remember. And, and ultimately, I was probably the only six-year-old more interested in getting a tour of the weather set in the news studio at age six than the Bozo show. My <laughs> father ends up getting a connection to one of the anchors at WGN and ends up getting us an invite to go watch the nine o'clock news. And I am wow. in kindergarten into going into first grade. Uh, the weatherman at the time, it actually hit me really hard. He, uh, his name was Jim Ramsey. He died last year mm. and I found out he passed away. And like, I was in tears in at 40 years old. Mm. And I met the man once when I was seven years old. Um, but he had such an impact. He took time with me. He printed out the weather maps. He showed me, this is the high pressure system. This is the low pressure system. You know, he was quizzing me on 
geographical knowledge that I may have picked up because you find out that this kid is obsessed with geography. Mm. And I then like brought the weather maps into my first grade teach my classroom. And she's like, this is great. I've never had a kid do this before. <laughs> and so um, it, it, you know, he, he took time and it just, it reinforced my interest in it. Um, and so I'm one of those kids that suddenly at, you know, in elementary school, I knew what I wanted to be and I was going to pursue it. So back back up at seven years old, he made an impact in your life. He invested in you. Yeah. He, he you know answered questions, showed you, gave you math. And at forty, you it's still it's still with you. you it still, hit me hard. It hit me hard. hard. Mm-hmm. I I it, like it because um, you know it's uh, you know this like it's so rare uh, to have people. I mean, you remember, and it might be on one hand, maybe if you're lucky, two hands. The people who make an impact on your life, the mentors in your life. And they could be somebody who's your boss for years. They could be a teacher. Um, Or in this case, it could be somebody who I spent a couple hours with in 1989. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm. But uh, it was, it was impactful. Uh, And, you know, at the same time, I'll say this, like, you know, my, my uh, mother's mom uh, and father, my grandparents on that side, uh, you know, would, when I'd go to visit, like they embraced my fascination with maps. There's a store, there's a Rand McNally store in Chicago. My grandmother took me to. And so I just became obsessed with all that stuff to the point that my father likes to tell the story about how we lived in an apartment above a Baskin Robbins uh, in outside Chicago. And, you know, he'd give us a couple quarters at the time to go buy an ice cream cone downstairs. And I would come back with a copy of the Chicago Tribune instead of an ice cream cone he's like who is this kid (laughs) amazing so you had a love for that kind of thing from as i guess as early as you can remember yeah you know it's one of those things where just my parents weren't imposing it on me by any stretch of the imagination i discovered it and i and i locked in well did you ever i'm gonna i'm gonna just ask a random question and we'll get back to your timeline but did did you have you ever been able to be the weatherman have you ever been able to give the weather in front of a green screen or whatever not in the traditional sense but i will say that you know in a various roles in news um you know in my role at cbs evening news i ran the cbs evening news the national broadcast uh so you know we're putting out the news to 350 million americans six or seven million are watching every night um you know this is the show that walter cronkite once anchored that dan rather once anchored um and so in that role I am sort of the executive producer weatherman because I'm like, all right, we're sending the whole team down to cover the hurricane on the shore. We're devoting the half an hour to that, you know, working with the meteorologist. Uh, and so in a traditional sense, me doing it in front of a green screen, no. But me working with, you know, some of the best weather people in the business, uh, covering various natural disasters. Uh, I've been able, I've been very lucky to be able to fulfill the dream that the, the six-year-old in me uh, once imagined you got to lead behind the scenes you got to to be the guy behind the scenes that's amazing and let me tell you so much i mean people don't even know the number of people the individuals the risk taking the planning that's involved when you turn on the tv set and you see one of those reporters with the wind blowing against them holding the microphone trying to hold their hat down being like let me tell you what's happening out here um, the number of people that go into that and the amount of planning that's required, you know, I would sit there with our meteorology team being like, we're going to do the whole show. Where are we going to be able to get a satellite signal? Um, what is the category three or category four? What buildings in the, in that area 
can we be in that we think will hold up in the storm and not be too close to the eye but not be so far away that you don't actually see anything. <laughs> I mean, the, the dance that's wow. required there to be able to tell the story of, you know, I'm bringing up hurricanes as one example, right. um, is, is pretty remarkable. And, you know, we'd literally sit there with Google Maps and then be like, okay, then we go to building plans. And we're like, okay, well, it appears that that Marriott was built in the mid nineties. We think that that construction will hold up, you know, oh et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, you never think about that. You know, you just see the see the person in front of the of the camera, and uh, yeah, that's. And, and by the way, you pick something a couple blocks away, the roof's going to collapse on them. And then, by the way, that puts your people in danger. And number two, mm. you're not going to get on TV that day. That's right. That's right. Wow. Okay. Back to back to yep. most eight year old. Who were you? Let Let's move up just a bit. You're working in your in your dad and mom's. You're working in the shop. Loving the the behind the scenes weather things and the news things already. You're passionate about that. But who were you as we go up to junior high? Now you're a you know young teenage preteen, young teenager, twelve, thirteen, something like that. Who is Mosh at that stage of his life? Mosh is continued to be very interested in news. Uh, there's a conversation my mom uh, told me about apparently, and we'll take you back to fourth grade where I came home from school and I was very disappointed in my classmates for not being interested in the news <laughs> at nine years old. <laughs> what, what fourth graders not interested? She's like, she's like, don't worry, you'll find your people. You're, you know, uh, ahead of your time. Um, by junior high, um, very into uh, national politics, international headlines. I remember uh, as early as fifth grade, it was the Clinton election in 92. I remember staying up super late i didn't have a tv in my room i had a radio uh listening to the uh bill clinton and al gore address the country when they won the election in november 92 so what would i have been 10 years old um and so you know just very into current events uh very into uh you know some form of of being a journalist i tried i wanted to start a newspaper in my middle school they didn't have a, a newspaper available to me Mm. Um, I would try to make any class project like something news related. Um, started to get into political debate. Um, I remember doing debates in junior high. And so I just remember being very engaged in that stuff and uh, obsessively watching the news when I came home from school. Uh, obsessively watching everything. I, you know, I was, I was watching a lot of television. Uh, the internet's still not a thing, Larry, right. when I'm in junior high. So spent a lot of time, you know, I remember in the, in the library looking at encyclopedias. And, and from a very young age, my only interest was nonfiction books. I was always annoyed really? if, a, if any, any class, even, you know, in middle school or junior high would require me to read fiction. I'm like, oh, this is a waste of time because it hasn't happened. <laughs> <laughs> it's not real. It has no relevance. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. So, so, so I'm going to go ahead and say this and you can correct me, but it sounds to me like Moshe is kind of headed down the track of being a bit geekish in terms of staying in the library and studying. Yes. The news. yes or no. Yes. 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 I mean, I aspired, you know, like, listen, I never really uh, competed in, in many school sports. Uh, I also, you know, I, I didn't really go to away camp, summer camp and engage in any of those activities. I was in the cabinet shop. So wow. it was, you know, I'm in the cabinet shop working, working for the family business. Uh, you know, I had an interest in sports. So I remember listening to you know, Cubs games on the radio um, as we awaited 
about 100 years for them to win that World Series in 2016. <laughs> um, little did I know that it was 20 years away. But um, we did have the Chicago Bulls at that time. Growing up in yeah. the 90s Chicago, you did have Michael Jordan, which was very exciting. So I was very interested in sports, very interested in news, interested in the world. Um, but yeah, definitely on the, on the spectrum of uh, jock to geek, definitely much closer to geek there, Larry. So, so there you are, and now you're, you're headed into, you know, you're loving what you do. You're loving your sports, loving news, loving, you know, the world, politics, and the, the scene. But now you're in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, how, do, what, how does that look? What, what, what do you look like, and who are you in high school? So I would say that a couple of the most impactful teachers to me uh, in my entire education um, were a couple of the teachers I had in high school. Mm. There's a, a couple uh, teachers who taught uh, AP government and AP comparative government, uh, Dan Larson and Andrew Kaneen. And I remember their names because I've been in touch with them ever since. And they did like a national show to prep kids for AP. Fat, like really smart teachers who didn't try to bring anything down. They treated you like adults. Mm. Um, and that's where, I mean, I still remember they were talking about this guy who was rising up in Russia named Vladimir Putin in the late 90s. And I remember learning about him in high school. I'm in high school from 96 to 2000. And uh, just very much just invested in that stuff. Incidentally, I was always sort of inspired too by what was happening in pop culture and fell in love with a TV show named West Wing. Um, West Wing was on air at that time. And so I'm watching that show and I'm like, I got to go to Washington. I got to be involved in this stuff. Maybe I want to get into politics. Maybe journalism isn't for me, but it's something in that that space. There was a, a club called Mile United Nations. Um, and I think it's pretty widespread. A lot of hundreds, thousands of high schools probably have it across the country. So Mali United Nations allows kids to play the role of a country in the UN and they have conferences. And so like we had a Mali UN team and we'd go to a conference at the University of Chicago or Harvard or USC. And I play the role of Russia on the Security Council or I'm given, I think my first one was Somalia. I'm, I'm the ambassador of Somalia and we have to deal with the resolution to the civil war in Somalia or whatever. Yeah, that's um, and so, you know, this is, this is something I like to do with my time in high school was be on the Mali UN team and prepare opening statements and resolutions, uh, playing the role of various <laughs> countries around the world. Wow. Um, and so that ultimately, you know, probably was my, one of my favorite activities in high school. I was also the editor of the high school newspaper. Okay. So I had, had a teacher there, Carol Joe Degro, who taught me the basics of reporting. And I remember being frustrated that I had to just cover things inside the school. And I remember, you know, going out and being like, there's this thing happening down the road. And I think it's an interesting story that students should care about. So I was already trying to bring kind of metro coverage, <laughs> city coverage into the, into the high school newspaper. Um, and, you know, I, in, so in high school, I mean, listen, I, I remember trying to join the soccer team my freshman year. I rode the bench the entire time, Larry. I think they let me in for the last game of the season for a couple minutes. Um, but so, you know, like dabbling in what I thought I could also do, but ultimately realizing my strengths lied in the, in the model UN stuff, the, the government stuff, yeah. the, the journalism stuff. You were still way ahead of your time. I mean, in, in those areas and serving as editor of the, of your high school newspaper wanting to look out instead of just in, I mean, all of those show signs of you continuing to pursue your passion. So you're, you're still doing it. You're still pursuing that passion. One question about, about that from the high school year era, what was one of the, if you had to think back through a struggle, what was one of the things you struggled with in those days, you think? 
I mean, to be honest with you, the academics I had fine. The student activities I had fine. I think socially is where I struggled. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I listen, I had, a, you know, several close friends, but I think where I struggled is probably the struggle many kids have in high school, which is, um, you know, the various cliques that existed and not yep. being in the coolest clique, right? Not being invited yep. to the parties. And that is where actually I think about kids today with social media, because I'm pre-social media. I'm frankly, the internet circa late 90s, if people recall, like you had to literally, you know, hey, mom, uh, no phone calls for the next hour. I'm getting on the internet, right? You got to switch over to the internet <laughs> line on AOL. Um, and so, you know, I, I knew that there were all these social activities. Kids were talking about it on Monday. Um, uh, but I didn't have to watch it live on social media like kids have to do today. But, yeah. I, you know, still, it was a struggle, right? It's still a struggle to, like, be interested in certain things, but not be completely able to uh, find your niche or find enough people interested in that stuff. Mm -hmm. In the high school setting where, frankly, the metrics for who's cool, what's cool, didn't necessarily align with who I was That's at right. that point in yeah. my life. Yeah. can can be a very cruel, difficult time. And, and I think you're very wise to articulate that, you know, in today's society, social media ha has been, you know, it's incredibly wonderful, but it's incredibly devastating too to, to teenagers who were still forming, you know, cognitively and emotionally. And, and uh, man, I, the exposure, the vulnerability that, it, sure. that they now uh, have to have to endure. I don't know. Most, yeah, it, it was hard. I know when you were in any, it's always been hard. It's always been hard. Right. Been but hard. at least 25 years ago, I'd be like, well, that probably, that party probably terrible. Right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever they're doing probably sucks. I'm much happier renting a movie from blockbuster on my Saturday night. Well, now, unfortunately the kids on Snapchat or TikTok or whatever, be like, Oh, that's what they're doing. Yeah. In the moment you're seeing what's going on. Yeah. Well, that, that, um, you know, those are hard times. You continue to pursue your passion now. You've graduated. Talk talk us through your college. Kind of the, the, who were you in the college days? So I I mentioned my interest. I mentioned West Wing, and so ultimately Washington felt like the place I needed to be. So I ended up going to uh, college at George Washington University. Um, and so you have a bunch of colleges um, in D.C. GW happens to actually be located five blocks from the White House and three blocks from the State Department, very much in the center. And that's what GW will sell you on is like, we're the center of the action. While Georgetown has more of the prestige, GW, we're the doers. You know, our kids, you know, you're going to have three internships by the time you're a sophomore. Right. And so I get to campus. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm in the center of the action. And I there's a whole bunch of students here that are interested in the same things I am. <laughs> they're also watching West Wing. They're also interested in journalism. <laughs> right. They also want to go intern on Capitol Hill. This is the place for me. And, and it was a whole discussion with my family about where I was going to go to college, because certainly that's a private university in D.C. I'd take out a bunch of loans, do work study, write some scholarship essays to figure out how to be able to afford that. Because otherwise, you know, uh, you know, I could have gone to a state school in the Midwest, which would have been much more affordable. But literally University of Illinois in a bunch of in the middle of the farm fields, right? <laughs> and so I go to Washington, immediately fall in love with the place. I'm I'm my first dormitory actually is across the street from the Watergate building, like wow. literally looking yeah. at where the break in was at the Watergate. Yeah. It was a it was a former Howard Johnson hotel yep. that the university had bought as a dorm. And uh, so I'm there. 
uh, I am, uh, you know, already involved in the campus newspaper, but in the campus newspaper, when you're three blocks from the State Department, you're covering national issues. You know, you're able to get a press pass to go to the White House. You're like, oh my God, this is remarkable. Um, so immediately I'm in love. I'm debating, you know, am I going into politics? My first internship is the beginning of my sophomore year. I am 19 years old. It is a Tuesday in September, September 11th, 2001. I'm a first day of my internship for Senator Dick Durbin, who, by the way, is still a senator from Illinois. I get there bright and early. Uh, I'm working under a communications director named Robert Gibbs. Robert Gibbs would go on to be Obama's White House press secretary. Yeah. Um, and I get there. I'm in a suit and tie. I'm there bright and early um, watching TV, watching suddenly the events unfold. My father reminded me as we record this, it's a couple of days since the anniversary of 9-11. Right. And he always likes to remind me, he's like, remember when you called me on 9-11 and you're like, Somebody accidentally flew into a building and I told you, no, 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 that was on purpose. <laughs> but he always likes to remind me, he's like, remember how naive you were? I was like, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> so I was watching and then suddenly, you know, you see the headlines about the plane going to the Pentagon. And I'm like, we're on Capitol Hill here. Suddenly sirens are going off in the building and they're like, evacuate all of the, initially they're going to evacuate the US Capitol. And then they said, we got to evacuate all the office buildings here at that time more planes were in the air. We didn't know what would come of the plane in Pennsylvania. And so we evacuate, you know, it's my first day of my internship is 9-11. Wow. And I, right. I re remarkably, I think back at it, I'm like, I can't believe I did this. I then get on the subway on the Metro in DC to go back to campus <laughs> of all days to take public transportation. I didn't want, I was like, I'm gonna take the subway back to campus. <laughs> now in retrospect, it was like, that was the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. But you know, you didn't know any better. Like yeah. we were still kind of processing what was happening. Get back to campus. Uh, my mom still has a printout of the AOL instant message chat that I sent her because the phone lines were down, the landlines were down, the cell phones were down. And so I sent her a chat saying, I'm back on in my dorm. I'm okay. And then the first call that comes through, Larry, is like late morning. I'm watching CNN in the dorm with my roommate. Uh, is the campus newspaper being like, where are you? You know, this is a big news story. Come to the newspaper office. Like, we're reporting on this. I was like, oh, you're a reporter. You got to go. I'm a reporter. Where are the instincts? <laughs> that would never happen to me ever again. But it does happen to me on 9-11. But that's the point of being a student, right? So uh, right. Get, get to the campus newspaper. Still have like my first story that I put out at 1 o'clock where we uh, walked, you know, to how far we could go to the White House. I run in, believe it or not, to Helen Thomas. Helen Thomas, for those who don't know, was a reporter, a White House reporter for almost 50 years for a wire agency that existed for many years called UPI. She used to sit in the front row of the White House press briefing and ask questions. I run into her on 9-11. I have a quote from her in my first story on 9-11 for the campus newspaper saying, I think something like, she says something like, this, is, this feels like Pearl Harbor. Mm. She would know. She was alive for that. Right. So um, anyway, I'm covering 9-11 and I, and, you know, it's a very bizarre thing to say, and journalists will understand, I don't want to be anywhere else. Like, Man. I am in the center of it. I yeah. have a front row yeah. seat to history here. And that was it. You were locked in. You had, you had, I won't say stumbled, but you found yourself into, you know, one of the greatest and most impactful news stories, you know, in the history of our country. And you were at the epicenter, kind of. You were right there. 
Yeah, uh, and and remarkably, I finished my internship that fall on Capitol Hill. There are the anthrax envelopes that fall. Oh, the yeah, DC sniper right. shooting was that. We were going through rumors every weekend on campus saying, we think there's going to be another attack this weekend. So all the kids would go home for the weekend. I mean, Larry, to think back to that time period, and again, no social media at that time. No, you know, like text messaging was still not a thing yet till 0203, really. And that's still when you're paying 15 cents, 20 cents a text message, if you recall those days. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just wild to think about. But I remember being frustrated on Capitol Hill with what I saw happening with politics, how divisive things were happening. I remember there were the debates over creating the Department of Homeland Security, et cetera. And I was like, listen, I think I'd rather be a referee. I'd rather be a journalist than be one be on one of the teams. Mm. You know, you are you were seeing that back then and probably had no idea how bad it could get and you know where we are today. No, because I, I don't know if we're ready to go to 2008, but I was the Fox News reporter covering the John McCain campaign. What I thought was the craziest, most divisive campaign I had seen, Sarah Palin, Barack Obama, etc. cetera, uh, the stock market collapse in September of, of 08. And we called it like, oh my God, things are getting so divisive and the Tea Party's rising up, et cetera. We had no idea. No that, idea. Like, the, the glory days, like how, how, how nice things could be. I mean, by the way, we're talking about 9-11 here. The fact that Republicans and Democrats could stand next to each other and That's resolve right. things. Can you imagine, can you imagine today a terrorist attack happening? How many minutes would it take before the finger pointing would begin? Oh. Being like, who didn't get bin Laden? Who didn't whatever? Oh, you know, like today... George W. Bush would be accusing Bill Clinton of like, well, you let it happen. I've only been president for nine months. You guys let him do, you know, like just imagine our today's politics in a situation like that. Yeah. I I hate to even think about it. I hate to say this, but you are a hundred percent right. All right. But back up a minute. So, so you are, you know, one to 10, your college days were a what for you? 15. Yeah. 15. You were loving it. And so you get through that, graduate. What happens next? So I end up, I'm the editor of the college paper. I uh, end up getting a fellowship to do a free master's degree at GW. They give it to five students every year. Wow, Um, congratulations. The president of the university hands it to a handful of people. You have a role in the university. I wasn't really thinking about a secondary degree, but applied for this program, like, why not, right? You know, getting a master's, great. So I end up getting a master's in international relations. But I'm so eager to already get into the business. So I end up starting, uh, I do an internship at Fox News. I end up getting uh, a basically three day a week job working for Chris Wallace at Fox News Sunday. So uh, actually it was, I think it was four days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I was working for Chris Wallace at Fox News Sunday as his researcher on the Sunday show. And this is still the time period when like the internet still isn't quite where you make news. There's still no social media. And so politicians 20 years ago, if they wanted to make a big piece of news, they made it on a Sunday show on Meet the Press on this week on Fox News Sunday. And uh, Chris Wallace, son of Mike Wallace, um, they're still around now over at CNN after doing almost 20 years at Fox. Mm. Uh, he was so, it was a remarkable boss to have as a first boss because he's so detail oriented and he also genuinely believes in being a nonpartisan arbiter of the truth. And uh, I'm his researcher. So whether at the time we have Mitch McConnell on or Condoleezza Rice on or Dick Cheney on or Howard Dean or John Kerry, whoever it was, okay, what does the other side say about this? What are they saying about this? What's the truth? 
is there any hypocrisy in their past when they're now claiming this, when the other side did that, what were they saying about it? And it really made me an incredible researcher, you know, and still we're digging around and I'm calling like, I remember calling libraries in the Midwest to try to fax me documents because there's still not enough stuff available online. And they're my, he's my boss. Meanwhile, I'm getting my master's in international relations and I'm like dabbling with the idea of going into the government um, at working for the State Department or Pentagon. You know, I think Goodness especially gracious. for all of us who went through 9-11, especially in Washington, you know, there's a you want to serve your country in some way. And so I end up starting in a program that would have taken me into this presidential management fellowship in the government where I would have been doing a circuit at the Pentagon or um Office of Director of National Intelligence, et cetera. But I found so much red tape in the government that by the time I finished my master's degree and I'm waiting for my security check and I'm waiting for this and I'm waiting for that, I'm like, F it. I'm mm -hmm. gonna just stay mm -hmm. at, at Fox News. They're giving me a full-time job. I'm really enjoying it. And so that was probably the last time I dabbled. But I, I ended up spending two more years um, getting that master's and focusing in on Middle East studies, focusing in on conflict resolution. I actually did a, a program in Cyprus uh, in the summer of 05, Cyprus is an island between Greece and Turkey um, that's actually split because of a war there 50 years ago. And they had a group of American students and Middle East students. I was actually there with uh, students from Iraq, uh, post-Saddam, uh, Syria, Lebanon, and we were working through the issues in the region uh, as mm. the next generation. And how do we resolve conflict? And, you know, the core thing you find, and this is something that works across the board, is if the resolution is good, no side will be completely happy. Right. And that's just something right. you have to understand. Yep. So talk about your personal life a little bit, Most during this time. Are you dating? Are you single? What's going on there? Dating my job, Larry Little. Yeah, um, I gotcha. I, I mean, listen, I'm dating. I'm going out. I have friends. Um, you know, like I said, like, you know, have a great social. I end up building a really great social circle at GW. I mean, I have a couple dozen friends from GW that 20 years later, we're still close. Mm. We're still on text threads. We still have a fantasy football league. Um, <laughs> you found and, your people, right? I, I found my people. I found my people. And um, and so, you know, I'm able to somehow work hard and play hard, as they say. So but nothing in terms of like. Prioritizing a, a committed committed relationship. I think I'm, you know, I'm going out, I'm enjoying myself, I'm meeting lots of people. But at that juncture of my life, um, it was work was number one. So you're focused on work, we might even say hyper focused, because you are just yes. in, in your well, I, I'll give you a sense. I'm doing my master's during the week. I'm working at Fox News Thursday through Sunday, my Sunday shift, because it's a Sunday morning show, I get in at 330 in the morning. But don't tell anybody. Actually, they knew because they saw me come in. But like, I'm going out Saturday night till 1 a.m., sleeping two hours, and then going to Fox at three in the morning. <laughs> Unbelievable! So you you literally could not sustain this kind of this kind of schedule. So what happens next? What what's the next phase in your? And now you're in your career phase. You're I'm in career phase. What's um, next? And that career phase continues. So I'm at Fox. I end up getting a, a role uh, as a political reporter on the 2008 campaign. The networks have role uh, reporters called embeds, embedded reporters. And so I, and what these embedded reporters do is they're literally a bunch of kids in their twenties and they give up their life and they get assigned a candidate typically. So I was assigned Rudy Giuliani was my first candidate. Oh. People don't remember this, but in August of 2007, the two leading candidates for president, 
and this is a good reminder for folks right now, uh, were Rudy Giuliani and Hillary Clinton. Barack Obama was at 12% in the polls. John McCain was at 2%, and we're thinking we were gonna, he was going to drop out. Both Hillary and Rudy were at 40-plus percent in their parties at that time. So I am like, oh, man, Rudy Giuliani, he's the next nominee for president. I got to sign number one. I watched the collapse of Mayor Giuliani's campaign um, and cover that for four months. And so what I do is I travel wherever he goes. He goes to Iowa. I'm with him. He goes to New Hampshire. I'm with him. Turns out Rudy had a Florida strategy. He's like, I can't win those states. I'm going to win Florida because there's a bunch of ex-New Yorkers there. So I'm following the Giuliani campaign. Unlike the rest of my colleagues freezing their butts off in Iowa and New Hampshire, I'm spending December and January in Florida with Rudy at spring training base, <laughs> whatever he was up to at that wow. time. That's great. He, of course, fails, drops out. I then get assigned John McCain as the nominee, and I spend the next 10 months with John McCain. Um, and McCain famously had a very close relationship with the media. He'd invite us on to the point, Larry, we'd run out of questions. We'd be on the bus with him for four or five hours. What else you guys got? literally nothing you want to talk to my dad sure <laughs> you do that um incredible um and so get this front row seat literally to the presidential campaign cover that you know we do 49 states five countries watch that unfold um watch him go through the various machinations watch the stock market collapse of 2008 and how you realize that 99% of politicians had no idea how to handle that. It was scary. If people of that era, if they knew the conversations that were happening in September and October of 2008, were literally, they're looking to Ben Bernanke and Hank Paulson, like the senior politicians, like what what are we doing here? Like, how does this work? Uh, I don't actually understand what happened with Bear Stearns or Lehman Brothers or whatever. Um, So you really, I had also reinforced to me that I need to really understand economics I need to understand because ultimately politics is great and all, but like the fundamentals of our economy are, you know, what make, makes the world go round. So I end up covering that election. Um, by the way, much more fun to cover a loser than a winner. Uh, really? I will tell you this. Yes. Really? Because the winners have it locked up. The losers, when you start to see the finger pointing that go on, like when you like watching McCain in the last six weeks is like all the finger pointings happening. Why are we losing? What should we do? Sarah Palin wants to call Obama a Muslim terrorist. McCain doesn't want to do that. Fox News is willing to do that alongside Sarah. That's upsetting John McCain. And then afterwards, the like the next morning, the McCain advisors being like, you want to know what was going on with Sarah Palin? She thought Africa was a country. Like just you see um, all of the stuff happening in front of you. And everyone is trying to write their version of history, right? Because they don't want to be blamed for it. And so uh, that was fascinating to cover. I cover six months at Capitol Hill and then uh, get a, my mentor, who was the vice president of Fox at the time, becomes the president of Bloomberg Television. And I end up the following year getting a job running international news coverage at Bloomberg TV, a business network in New York. Okay. So now, so now you have, you're advancing in your, in your career. It's still kind of early, but you're advancing and you're running now an international uh, you know, uh, opportunity at Bloomberg. So what's going on now with you? What's going on? Are you still, are you still married to your work or things happening elsewhere? More than ever. I'm now, (laughs) (laughs) I've moved to New York for work. It's the first of four moves I will make for work in terms of cities. Um, 
I, uh, as an international editor, what do I have to do? I have to go to London. I have to go to Paris. I have to go to Hong Kong. I have to go to Brazil. Now, a very exciting, yeah. very yeah. exciting situation for a 27-year-old, 28-year-old. Yes, yes. Um, and, uh, but I'm, you know, when I'm in the city, I'm in New York City. I've moved from D.C., which is like, you know, 500,000 people to New York, a city of 9 million people. Um, I'm 27. I'm in media. I'm meeting people. And in media, I'm like, oh, New York feels much more my speed. I couldn't, I couldn't figure out where to get food after 9.30 p.m. In, in D.C. In New York, it's literally pick 150 different cuisines after 9.30 p.m. So you're loving it. You're in New York, international yeah. editor. Things are going great. You're, you're going like 110 miles an hour. Yep. What happened? Uh, so do that for a couple of years. Uh, get some really remarkable opportunities. I, um, one of them, by the way, I, I, was on the, I led the team covering Fukushima and the um, nuclear disaster uh and the earthquake out of japan so spend spend a couple of weeks there um as we were watching that unfold and that's a whole separate conversation we can have about um government crisis management and how people adapt one of the amazing things by the way in that story is the japanese people their trust in their government is really something i remember that they were partially evacuating tokyo and you could see for 40 city blocks people in line to get on the train. We're spending hours waiting to get on the train. And I was just imagining in the US, if New York City said, we need to partially evacuate the city, there would not be 40 blocks of calm people sitting there quietly no. with their kids. No. It would be chaos. And so it was just remarkable to see a different culture um, in a time of crisis like that. Now, uh, I have that job. My boss, actually, who brought me from Fox to Bloomberg, ends up becoming president of CBS News. He says, listen, Want to come back to general news? Come over to CBS. We're launching a new morning show. So uh, I meet with a guy named Chris Licht, who at the time was running Morning Show. He developed Morning Show. Uh, you might know most recently as the guy who was president of CNN for a year, but um, that didn't work out. Uh, he says, we're launching a new morning show. I'd like you to move back to Washington to run politics and government coverage for the CBS Morning Show. So I'm now leaving New York. I'm going to Washington. I'm like, yes, but it has to be temporary. I want to come back to New York. He goes, yes, just make the DC thing happen. I'll let you come back to New York. So I moved back to Washington. Um, and really for the first time as a senior producer there for the morning show, I'm building a team. I'm hiring a dozen people. Mm. Uh, we are completely throwing out the old culture. The previous CBS morning show was cooking segments and fashion segments and et cetera. And this is a hardcore news show based around Charlie Rose, Gail King, and the Nora O'Donnell. And I am managing how we're covering Washington. We're going to be the morning show of record uh, as opposed to the Today Show or Good Morning America when it comes to politics. So, so let me ask you this for just a minute. You followed a friend uh, that you had built a relationship with. I mean, he, he brought you to Bloomberg, then brought you to CNN. Talk a minute about the importance of that relationship and how it helped you in your career. I, I, I don't know where I'd be without it. You know, I think that it's one of the pieces of advice I give to any um, aspiring journalist, but frankly, anyone in any business, which is, if someone takes a moment, uh, it takes many moments to um, worry about you, to be concerned about you, to help develop you, embrace that relationship. Um, mm. And so also like, you know, the vision exercise of like, who do you want to be in five years? Find that person. Mm. And if you're lucky enough, maybe that person will be have an interest in you. Because what I have found 
you know, unfortunately in business is there are people that view the next generation as like, oh, this is my competition. I got to keep them down. Now, the good managers out there will embrace people around them that might actually be their bosses one day. It's good. And this is what I liked about um, this boss's name is David Rhodes. He's now running Sky News out of London. And, um, you know, he brought me along. He, um, you know, was an incredible mentor. Um, And uh, I trusted, you know, even the Bloomberg job wasn't the natural thing. I wasn't interested in business news. I wasn't generally interested in moving to New York at that exact moment. Now I found that to be the right fit eventually, but you sort of take a a leap of faith because you trust in that person. And so ultimately the, you know, the next natural step wasn't go back to Washington and help develop a morning show after doing business international news. And yet there was sort of a leap of faith there. Um, And, you know, you know that businesses, you work for any business, they can drop you in a second, right? They they worried about the bottom line. It is what it is. And this is something that would eventually learn in a few years when we get there that ultimately you're expendable you know if you god forbid went away tomorrow they'd figure out a replacement for you next week you know that's right that's, that's how businesses right. work but when you have individuals in those businesses uh you know individuals that you're lucky enough that you know will take that moment and, and treat you beyond a, just an employee feel like you know they really want to invest in your success you sometimes got to take that leap of faith and, and and trust that maybe this next move will will work out because at least I'm I'm with somebody or somebody's brought me there who is generally interested in, in my right. in my growth. Investing in you and is an advocate for you. Thank you for listening to part one of Dr. Larry Little's interview with Mosh Wanunu. Be sure to check back as we join Larry and Mosh for part two. To learn more about our guest, you can find Mosh Wanunu on Instagram or visit mo.news. You can support our work by subscribing or hitting that like button. To find more episodes, you can find Crossing the Line on iTunes, Spotify, or on our website in the show notes. If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast or want to learn more about us, contact the show through our website, eaglecenterforleadership.com. Until next time, thank you for tuning in.